Welcome to Stage, the Streaming Age podcast. This week's episode spotlights the work of Sarab, the artistic collaboration of Omer Wasim and Shahana Rayani. Our guest journalist and researcher Heba Islam will take us on a journey witnessing environmental and social degradation along the China-Pakistan economic corridor. This project was co-produced by our dynamic colleagues at Koch International Artists Association, New Delhi. You can listen to Zarab's enigmatic audio travelogue on www.stage.tba21.org and if you like this episode, which we really hope you do, please subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. Don't forget to share with your friends and if you have a minute to spare, please do leave us a review. Without further ado, this is Stage. <laughs> The China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, otherwise known as CPEC, is part of China's One Belt, One Road mega-infrastructure project. While the larger project connects parts of the Middle East, Africa, and South and Southeast Asia, the CPEC portion of the project connects China to areas along the Indian Ocean coastline via Pakistan. The project commenced in 2015 and since then has come to represent massive infrastructural development and subsequent environmental concerns in pockets across the country. From the deserts of the Thar region, where coal is mined to fuel the project, to the port city of Gwadar in the southwest, the landscape is changing in the service of imperial and economic ambitions. What have these ambitions come to mean for those living in the lands that constitute CPEC? In this podcast, we explore the ripple effects of a massive development project that promises national prosperity. But the question remains, development for whom and prosperity for whom? Speaking to anthropologists and urban planning researchers, we explore those who are invisibilized by the national narrative of CPEC's promises for all. My name is Hiba Islam. I'm a former journalist and current PhD student at Johns Hopkins University and I'll be walking you through these themes today. We hear first from Dr. Nasheen Anwar, a professor of city and regional planning and director of the Karachi Urban Lab at the Institute of Business Administration in Karachi, Pakistan. So I see it as a very complex terrain, but projects like China Pakistan Economic Corridor, which is a portfolio of so many different kinds of projects, each with its own timelines, with its own set of, of beneficiaries and stakeholders, with different kinds of outcomes, because there are so many different kinds of infrastructural dynamics going on in there. So an example is the, um, the very large scale uh, coal mining project that is tied to energy production taking place in Tharparkar, because I see it as the kind of the jewel in the crown of, of the entire CPEC dynamic so far, because I think it's the largest uh, project of its kind, the most, one of the most expensive projects, if not the most expensive that has been implemented so far. Its, it's emplacement in, is in a very specific context, which is the Thar Desert, a particular kind of an ecological landscape that has uh, a very specific relationship with the people that live in that region. And then, of course, coal mining, uh, open pit coal mining is very devastating. There is, there is no one way to, to talk about it. It has deep repercussions 
for uh, for local ecologies and for land, for people's um, connectivities with land. I had a, a, a project where we were looking at the impact of uh, the coal mining and the energy combined uh, project in Tharparka because with the onset of the coal mining, which has, you know, which covers something like 19,000 square kilometers, which is not entirely desert, it's also quite populated. So we began to see the, the start of a new phase of displacement and resettlement and relocation. And it was difficult to kind of see this project as something that would be necessarily positive. So you have this entire discourse of the Sindh Engro coal mining project bringing benefits to the nation in terms of uh, giving uh, a greater impetus to the national energy grid. Right. But at the same time, you know, spurring on, triggering uh, a host of um, what I would call quite devastating consequences for for the local population. So we see that there are clear environmental consequences to projects like CPAC. But how are these consequences justified? And what are the benefits that such projects promise? Dr. Anwar points us towards some important contradictions that show people do want the state to intervene on the land in some ways, if not others. So the story is is complicated and it's and it's one that is I, I see one that is also uh, particularly devastating for people's lives because people had no choice but to accept uh, or were given no choice but to accept the repercussions and the consequences of being, you know, quote unquote, in the way of development. So I think this is a classic instance of, um, you know, of the very face of development. This is development. It's violent. It's devastating. It's It has deep-seated consequences for ecologies, for regions. So that's a very particular kind of project with specific kinds of consequences, say, for instance, to road development projects that also are unfolding in that region, which are seen quite differently. People see these road development projects as um, greater um, access to hospitals, to certain kinds of transport, to jobs. So, you know, this is this. I always see these mega infrastructure development projects as these double-edged kind of, uh, you know, dynamics and uh, with very specific kinds of effect. You'll remember that Dr. Anwar points out that CPEC actually consists of many different infrastructure projects. So far, she's told us about a coal mining project in the desert. But CPEC is equally impactful in urban spaces, and that's what we're going to hear about next. Um, in the Karachi context, uh, the dynamics are equally <laughs> complex, uh, certainly not straightforward. So my colleagues and I at the Karachi Urban Lab just finished um, a very lengthy project on land displacement. So Karachi has been on the, on the receiving end of, of mega infrastructural projects well beyond CPEC now for well over two decades. We see the dovetailing of, of mega infrastructural projects such as the Lari Expressway, which led to the displacement of well over 75,000, 80,000 people to um, urban development projects. And we're talking about people who fall in the categories of urban poor, uh, lower income, lower to middle income, and uh, marginalized populations, marginalized communities. And and we find it's very hard to actually trace the, 
trace these numbers because uh, municipal authorities and uh, tend not to keep a track of those who have been shunted out of their homes or so the only way to actually trace these numbers is to look at uh, populations that have actually been resettled so we see a anywhere between 400,000 to 600,000 plus people that have been displaced over the last two decades, starting in the year 1999 onwards with the General Musharraf takeover, which really kick-started this entire infrastructure fetish in Pakistan specifically. And CPEC sort of really comes much later. You know, the, the justification of, of making these projects happen is the classic uh, narrative of, uh, well, these projects will... Uh, eventually benefit the public or they will benefit the, you know, the nation. But it's never quite made clear how we define the public or who the state defines as the public because there are many, many publics. Interesting that you, you call it an infrastructure fetish, right, that goes beyond CPEC because it sort of um, shows you how it's almost a kind of magical thinking, right, that this is, and I, I was looking over a paper um, that you published on your webpage where you talk about, you know, infrastructure utopia. And I thought that was a really good way to talk about it, which is like, whatever the circumstances or costs must be, it's always assumed that it'll balance itself out. There's very little attempt made, especially in the Karachi context, for local and city governments or provincial governments to actually, um, you know, come on ground and actually engage with people and and see what they have to say and what their aspirations and their desires are and what their anxieties are about. So I think that without this, this connectivity in these very important and, and uh, urgent uh, engagements through, you know, through which bureaucrats and policymakers and politicians and community representatives and activists need to sit down and thrash out without participatory planning pathways, uh, then the consequences and the outcomes can be even more devastating. And this is largely um, what my colleagues and I have noticed. So one of the things that we did was, uh, you know, we, we went back and we looked at um, what happened to those people who were resettled in these new colonies. The vast majority of them are living sort of on the rural urban margins, kind of shunted uh, to the very edges of the city where issues of mobility have become very complicated, access to livelihood systems, jobs, commuting times. So, so even in those instances when these massive projects which lead to displacement, when they promise compensation and in the form of, say, cash compensation and allotments, in the long run, even the promise of, uh, of those compensation schemes tends to, tends to lag or it fizzles out. You know, we're thinking so much about the invisibilizing effect of the people who live in these these spaces before these projects come and sort of upend everyone's lives. And I just wanted to bring your attention to a line from the same paper of your own that I was mentioning earlier, the, the short piece on infrastructure's utopia. And you asked this really important question. You say, as the transnational chains of infrastructure's mega capital investment touch down in ordinary places, for whom and on whose land will these forces build infrastructure, right? And I think that mm. question of on whose land is really important. That land belongs to people and it's used by people, right? Um, yes. so, so that's something I wanted to ask you about. You know, how can we think about 
what happens when this land is considered blank and for the taking? That's a great question, Hiba, really, and a very important one. So the land dynamic is also a very complex one, you know, so it could be a very specific kind of dynamic in in rural, uh, pastoral, agrarian setting, and then, a, and then another kind of a dynamic and in, in an urban setting. So this question of empty land, and uh, especially, you know, Typically, we might refer to to the commons, common property resources, pastoral pastoral land that is used by pastoralists, etc. That is typically seen as empty, and we we see this uh, being repeated not only in the context of Parker Guachar land, for instance, where uh, pastoralists come together with you know and uh, their uh, their cattle and their their sheep, and you know they graze. It's used for grazing purposes, and and there is a whole very complex. Uh, not human, non-human ecological framing to the way that that land has been used for centuries. And bureaucrats, policymakers uh, tend to see that land as empty. And and in the urban context, what is interesting is that, you know, cities like Karachi, which are these incredibly intense uh, cities of all kinds of crises unfolding, right. land dynamics have all kinds of complex layers, right? So issues of informalization and urbanization have built up uh, these complex tenure regimes, de jure, de facto, legal, illegal, licit, illicit, formal, informal. And and generally speaking, then, when these many of these projects come and touch down, uh, state representatives might turn around and say that, well, in such and such settlement, People don't have leases, even though they have de facto tenure. Right. So that land is for the taking, right? So you could be declared illegal overnight. And that's precisely actually what is happening these days in Karachi in, in across myriad informal settlements. And okay. one of these has to do with the Karachi Circular Railway Project, which is actually now connected with the CPEC. And it's going to be interesting to see how that drama unfolds in the coming years. And, you know, what, you know, and just then this larger question, maybe also thinking about climate change too in all this, where we know that in this development narrative, you know, there's a sense of progress, but we also know that Pakistan is one of the countries most vulnerable to climate change. What impact can we think about, you know, on the larger environment as well? The climate change point that you made, yeah, I such an important one. And and we see this drama already unfolding in Karachi. So uh, a very important example is right what happened earlier this summer with urban flooding when the city was absolutely capsized yeah. and in a matter of 3 days uh, we had rainfall which was which created just an absolutely devastating devastating set of consequences for people all over the city rich and poor alike but of course the the damage done to populations living in informal settlements in particularly vulnerable areas was was even more you know uh, dramatic so as a result of this urban flooding situation the federal provincial governments and the military have gotten together and they're going to be launching very soon what is called the Karachi transformation package and this is a US 6.8 billion dollar package that oh, wow. seeks to restore the city's infrastructures and its local ecologies. And the local ecology question rests on uh, the the natural water channels, what have been turned into these uh, uh, garbage dump and drainage streams that connect with the Lari River that eventually then uh, flows into the Arabian Sea. So these water channels have become clogged and for a variety of reasons over the last 40 years, lack of care, lack of operations and maintenance, and also the expansion of both commercial and residential informal settlements. So now the government has announced that they're going to be removing these so-called encroachments. 
So now we know that some concern for the environment is finally starting to seep into how the Pakistani state and local government carries out development. But as you'll see, Dr. Anwar ends by asking us to consider how this new phase comes with its own problems. But then what happens to people's lives? Those who've been settled there for decades and for them, you know, uh, that land that they have supposedly encroached upon because they didn't encroach upon it. It was very convenient for the state. The state looked the other way and has been doing so for the last 30, 40 years. So this is a classic question of, well, the natural waters have a right of way, but then don't people also have a right of way? So what's the relationship between, uh, you know, yet another phase of mega infrastructural development in which the ecology is kind of at center, center stage, very much at the forefront, you know? So, you know, so we will have to wait and see. Dr. Anwar navigates us through a story of structural violence, sometimes in the name of development and sometimes even in the name of environmental protection. But which Pakistani publics benefit from projects like CPAC? Tariq Rahman, who's a PhD student in anthropology at the University of California, Irvine, who researches land development and urban expansion in the city of Lahore, Tells us a bit more about the complex processes of money exchanged in the name of infrastructural development. While Lahore itself is not in the CPEC route, he points to the ways that global and regional financing around CPEC creates its own flows of money, networks, and investment. The CPEC route doesn't directly impact on Lahore. It, uh, you know, doesn't uh, come too close to Lahore. Uh, but what you are seeing in Lahore, as well as other Pakistani cities and cities outside of Pakistan where uh, overseas Pakistanis live, is a tremendous amount of interest and investment in Gwadar. You know, for example, there's a number of real estate developers that are situated in Lahore that are involved with projects in Gwadar. Uh, and the same goes for people working in other areas of the real estate market, like brokers and, um, you know, other middlemen that, you know, facilitate these projects with respect to construction and, you know, plans and engineering and dealing with government bodies and, and so on. Yeah, that's really interesting because I was actually going to ask you about how we can think about global source of capital in relation to real estate speculation or investment. But what you're talking about is also a much more local geography of capital. Initially, I was like, I wanted to think a little bit about like, okay, well, what does it mean for, you know, on this larger scale for China to be investing this much money in Pakistan and how that might trickle down? But what you're describing is actually a much more parallel process. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think it's probably helpful to think about it. Uh, at least the, the scale of real estate as a, a, a translocal or transnational process. You know, one of my research sites is a WhatsApp group uh, with about 250 overseas Pakistanis who kind of talk back and forth about the real estate market and where to invest. And, you know, Gwadar is very much a part of those conversations. They're you know, sharing things like documents and maps and news articles and Google satellite images. And these are people 
who live in, you know, the U.S., Canada, the Middle East, uh, even sometimes, you know, parts of Africa, parts of East Asia. I mean, they're from all over the world. So when we look at the flows of capital happening in Gwadar and the, you know, transnationality of it, at least at, you know, this level of uh, investment in, in land um, and in real estate, you know, it's, it's, it's coming from every direction. <laughs> it's coming from all over within Pakistan and outside of Pakistan as well. As I asked Dr. Anwar, I also wanted to ask Tariq about what's happening to the people caught in the middle of this relentless buying and selling of land. We mentioned at the beginning of this podcast that the story of development and displacement neither begins nor ends with CPEC. And this is true for Lahore too. The land rendered blank and up for grabs in the real estate market is actually land where people live, where they work, where they make their livelihoods. Often, as you'll hear Tariq say, these areas are called kachiyabadis, a word for informal settlements. Sometimes, the people who live in areas that become part of urban expansion plans actually even have formal leases. But as you'll see, that doesn't necessarily make a difference. You have a lot of examples like that, you know, Kachiyabati communities um, or other people who are living on land that's being acquired by developers who, uh, you know, are essentially uh, being displaced by these development processes. What you also have, especially in Lahore, is uh, the conversion of agricultural land into uh, urban land or what people tend to call uh, the conversion of green land into brown land. It's really diverse the way that it happens. So in some instances, you'll have agricultural landowners that are eager to sell their land because they don't like farming. And sometimes these people will sell their land and go on to become real estate brokers themselves. But, you know, there's not always, I mean, it's certainly not equal ground. And... I think one of the most troubling things that I've come across in my research is the strategies that developers sometimes use to get land from agricultural landowners. So um, one broker who I was speaking with, they were talking about how this developer had kind of acquired a large amount of land in an area and was really trying to get at um, this one particular parcel. But the uh, landowner wasn't selling. And so what they did was basically bought every parcel of land around that person and shut them off in terms of access to roads, access to shipping, access to, you know, anybody coming in and out and just disrupted their business and made, you know, uh, farming essentially impossible in that area and then forced them to sell different types of situations that occur with this with with different outcomes obviously you know displacing people in kachia bodies is the most gross form of of this there's also a lot of different types of situations some in which you'll see landowners having more agency than than you would imagine them having but others in in which people are being exploited in ways that uh, you know we might not have uh, been able to imagine Listening to Tarek talk about how land is rendered unusable in the name of urban development made me think about the environmental impact of the new roads, the new landscape of urban sprawl emerging in Pakistan. As we move in our story from Karachi to Gwadar to Lahore, I asked Tarek 
What does urbanization in Lahore tell us about the meteoric rise in pollution the city has experienced over the last few years? Are we reaching a critical point or are we already past it? In Lahore, you know, I think a conservative estimation is that the city has grown by, you know, 20 or 30 percent within the last 20 years alone. If you, you know, look at a map of the built area of Lahore, I mean, even in, um, you know, 2000, but much less at partition, it's uh, exponentially expanding because of this real estate process. What are the consequences of this expansion? Well, you know, to start, I mean, one, as you're converting agricultural land into urban land, you're uh, not only displacing farmers, but you're also affecting your food supply. You're affecting the amount of fresh produce that can be available in the city. And you're also affecting the prices uh, for lower income people who live in the city. You're also going to be affecting tree coverage. I saw a map of tree coverage in Punjab, which I think was tracking it since 2000. Um, and along with you know the expansion of the city has been the uh, exponential cutting of trees around the city, kind of you know expanding outward from the city in every direction as the city grows, you know, which you know as we know has tremendous environmental effects. So far, we've walked you through some of the clear human and environmental impact of CPEC and similar mega projects. But are there other ways to think about this unfolding devastation? How do displaced communities help make sense of the loss of home and livelihood that they face? Keeping in mind the artwork this podcast accompanies, we now turn to how local mythologies, the perspectives of non-human others, and in particular, Jinns provide a provocative alternative imaginary in which to consider land politics and development in Pakistan. We're about to hear from Dr. Navida Khan, a professor of anthropology at Johns Hopkins University who writes extensively about both climate change and Islamic theology in Bangladesh and Pakistan respectively. I asked her what taking the perspective of Jinns seriously can tell us about CPEC and environmental degradation. For those who don't know, jinns are invisible supernatural entities believed to live alongside humans. I just thought that, you know, the focus on jinns is clever for a couple of reasons. One is, uh, of course, to draw attention to the non-human And there has been a lot of effort to draw attention to the non-human through bringing in the perspective of uh, of, uh, other sentient beings like uh, non-human animals or other living uh, beings such as trees and and, uh, other parts of the biosphere and so on. But also in terms of other agential things that are not necessarily living, such as wind and dust. So in a way, it was a very nice way 
to bring in the perspective of a form of life, you know, that sort of falls under under belief category because jinns don't exist in every every frame of reference. But at the same time to suggest that, you know, they might be names for tendencies or intensities or energies or perspectives that are not necessarily tied to a a sentient being or a living thing or a gentle material. So I I liked the perspective of uh, focusing on jinns as a way to capture uh, all these errant uh, perspectives uh, uh, that are not well, um, you know, sussed out in the current kind of literature, which tends to be not at all enchanted. In some ways, it's very science-driven still. So I, I thought that was rather clever to have a focus on the jinn that way. So, for example, there is a way in which jinns being driven out of a particular milieu might be attended to, and that falls within the older rubric of modernization and disenchantment and rationalization. I can imagine that jinns have been shooed out of uh, older ruins or castles or out of graveyards that was that was sort of given to them as the place for their habitat because of modernization, because of the expansion of economic enterprise. So it isn't as though they protested against the the economic destruction, but that they were just shooed away as being irrelevant to these uh, economic enterprises. But is this just a story of modernization, a story we understand to be an essentially human and rational one that renders the supernatural irrelevant? There is another angle, And Dr. Khan says it's about how we think of the idea of home. However, there is a different way in which one could say that they um, feel, you know, uh, that they feel affected by environmental devastation. And that would have to do with with another line of reasoning, which looks at environmental change as making your home unhomely, as making spaces uninhabitable. Right. So I could imagine how it, they're not just being shooed away, but that they are beginning to feel disease or discomfort in the spaces that they might have once occupied. Right. And so that loss of comfort and that rise of the unhomely captures a wider experience of feeling out of sync or not comfortable or not, uh, you know, not finding your home uh, habitable anymore. I also spoke to Dr. Khan about how, in the process of Shahana and Omar's research for their artwork, many who live on the lands where CPEC development is taking place describe the phenomenons of jinns leaving places they had previously occupied. Listen to what she says next about why jinns would rather leave than stay in places they are said to have occupied for centuries. I could understand 
the jinns as, you know, God's creation and seeing God in the creation around them, which is a very important way by which, uh, you know, uh, worship is supposed to take place. You're not supposed to just do your five-time prayers and uh, uphold all your obligations if you're a Muslim, but you're also supposed to see God in the world around you in creation. So if we grant that these are Muslim jinns and this is how they worship, then I could see how seeing the devastation of uh, of creation around you is in some ways, uh, you know, intolerable, is in some ways suggests that God is no longer in the world or is in retreat, or that humans' hubris has gotten to the point where they feel no relation or no uh, responsibility towards creation. So I could see under those conditions where abandoning a place which no longer feels uh, uh, to be, you know, to have the hand of God on it, to be a a very legitimate way to understand uh, how the jinns might leave a place. It also goes back to what you were saying about it's not necessarily just about destruction, but your home not feeling homely anymore. I was wondering if you could maybe talk about that a little more because that was really interesting about how it's not just environment as this sort of all-encompassing word it is about spaces or hierarchies or particular niches um and yeah how we might think of those differentiations as opposed to just thinking of a blanket environmental destruction across the china park economic corridor I mean, no one experiences change in a block. No one, right? I mean, the whole category of climate change is uh, so complicated because it uh, gathers together such a heterogeneity of effects. It's the same with environmental change. It's just a meta category under which all these other very heterogeneous uh, elements fit. And, you know, everybody is experiencing it in extremely differential ways. And I'm not even speaking about about the physical differences, but I'm also speaking about how you can inhabit the same space, but depending on where you are in the social hierarchy, you experience the the physical devastation or destruction completely differently. The other thing in terms of, you know, how it is that change uh, uh, can be felt even in these uh, spatial, uh, physical ways, So what's the relationship between change in our physical environment and local communities explaining them in ways that may not be scientific per se, but remain equally telling? Here, Dr. Khan talks about how climate change has led to an increase in cloud cover and thus in lightning, an element we might not necessarily consider when we think of changing weather patterns. You know, one thing that I've noticed, uh, at least in my field work in, you know, the the river uh, chores in Bangladesh, where there had been such an increase in lightning, you know, the the explanatory frameworks were, you know, kind of like um, all over the place. So in the past, if somebody was hit by a lightning, it was understood as uh, as, you know, black magic, uh, bad luck. 
But then the uh, the number of uh, deaths rising this way uh, becomes a little bit too much to you know be buoyed up by that explanation alone. The other explanation that I've heard is that it's a conspiracy, that it is, you know, uh, actually not a natural thing anymore, and that it is an unnaturally created phenomenon, all for the purposes of killing people, for the purposes of having magnetized bones for new machinery, right? In a way, it is an acknowledgement of climate change, that there's some man-made impact on something that previously was only sort of like, you know, thinkable at the register of God. And so I think it's quite interesting how some aspects of the physical environment that used to have this kind of mystical element or have a metaphorical or symbolic weight has come to bear the burden of, of, of uh, human excess. The idea of jinns being affected by human excess is a compelling one. And I asked Dr. Khan to consider what the relationship between humans and jinns is. How do they act on one another? And how do they affect one another? Why do they leave rather than attempt to counter the environmental damage done? I mean, if jinns act uh, in the world, they always act through the mediation of humans. They don't act independently of humans. And it's mostly through human psyche. They act on the human psyche. So, I mean, again, if they were to respond to this loss of habitat or um, the expansion of, uh, of, of destruction or the loss of God's creation, they would have to act on the human. They don't act on the physical. You might still be thinking, what do jinns have to do with all this? But in taking this non-human figure seriously, we can start to see some of the contradictions in the relentless march of development that projects like CPAC trumpet. So many have already been displaced, so many homes destroyed, so many ways of life rendered unrecognizable. So much of this destruction is already irreversible that considering the contradictions at the heart of mega development projects becomes not just a question of curiosity, but an ethical question as well. This can mean attending to the needs and anxieties of the displaced for whom the compensation is never enough or wondering why people may mourn the departure of a jinn from their land. Whether you see the figure of the jinn as a metaphor, a folktale, or a serious consideration of how humans relate to those that aren't human, it's clear that the environmental destruction and social and economic devastation at work cannot be explained in any meaningful way if we focus on narratives of modernization and progress alone. Rather, we ask you to listen to what those who have the most to lose have to say. Stage, the Streaming Age podcast was brought to you by Tizen Bonamisa Art Contemporary. This was a co-commission between Stage and Koch International Artists Association New Delhi. Special thanks to Niyati Dave. Remember to visit our website on www.stage.tba21.org. 
If you enjoy listening and want to stay up to date with future episodes, please do subscribe to our podcast via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whichever platform you use. Reviews and shares are always deeply appreciated. Today's artist duo was Zarab. The interviews were conducted by Heba Islam. The editor-in-chief of Stage is Francesca Thyssen-Bornemisa. Carlos Urroz is the director of Thyssen-Bornemisa Art Contemporary. Soledad Gutiérrez is our content curator. Our producers are Soledad and myself, Igor Ramírez. Nina Speranda and Gidra Vejadova are our project managers. Elena Utrija is our production assistant. This episode was edited by Ana Esteve. Our theme music is by Carl Michael von Hauswolf. Thank you for listening. Thank <laughs> you.